finding their seats. A reminder, this will be the, well, it's not going to be the last time because we have one more week of camp going on, but it's the um, almost the last, one more week of Camp Arete announcements. So be in prayer for the camp next week and for their transportation, for the counselors, for Andy Woods, who's the camp Bible teacher this year. Also, um, we, a reminder, we're having the men's prayer breakfast Saturday morning, and uh, that will be at 7.30, deacons meeting at 9 o'clock, and also a reminder that uh, the funeral for Dick Mills will be at the Memorial Oaks uh, Funeral Home and Cemetery, which is on I-10 on the south side uh, out by Eldridge, between Eldridge and uh, Derry Ashford, close to that. That's at 12.30, and there will be a reception here at West Houston Bible Church uh, following the funeral service. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure that they're spiritually prepared to study the word this evening, make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, walking in the light, abiding in Christ, all the various terms that are used in the Scripture to define our fellowship with God. After a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you are the God of history, that you are the creator God who oversees the affairs of men. You have given us freedom, freedom to make right choices or freedom to make wrong choices. Because of Adam's sin, we are corrupt, we are in need of grace, and we continue to see the world that has rebelled against you deteriorate into greater and greater chaos, disorder, and violence. Father, tonight we recognize this horrible situation that has taken place in France. This, once again, an attack by these Islamist, uh, supremacist individuals attacking innocent people. Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of world leaders, open the eyes of our president, open the eyes of our political leaders to the real danger here, the problem that we are at war and have been at war, not a war of our choosing, but a war that has been brought to us for well over 15, almost 20 years, going back to several attacks in the 90s. 
Awaken us as a people. Uh, Take the blinders off of their eyes. Father, we pray that we might use this in grace and in kindness to present the gospel to people desperately in need of truth and that we may help them to understand uh, things the way you have described them in your word and that you might use us consistently to be faithful. Uh, Lights to this wicked and perverse generation. Father, we also remember uh, Dick Mill's family. We pray that you would comfort them with your comfort. And for Andy, as he uh, prepares for the message Saturday, that that would be one that will be make the gospel clear to those who are present. Now, Father, we pray for us tonight as we study your word that we might be challenged, encouraged, strengthened by this study. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to briefly review a, what I cover, a little bit of what I covered last night to set the context, the focal point of the first three verses in uh, 1 Peter 2 as they command to desire the word. I think that unfortunately the way it's translated by putting this uh, clause at the beginning of this uh, sentence, this comparative Uh, phrase rather, as newborn babes, it takes away the punch of the imperative verb here to desire the word. That's what the command is. And so that's what we're going to talk about. We've looked at the background here in terms of the introduction. Uh, It's written to uh, Jewish, Jewish background believers in Asia Minor, what is now Turkey. In verses 3 through 12, we have an introduction that focuses our attention upon Uh, problems, persecution, adversity, difficulties. And I believe it's primarily related to uh, Jewish believers who are now uh, being opposed by the Jewish community out of which they've come, and they are struggling with two areas of opposition, one from the the Jewish community that has rejected Jesus as Messiah and the Gentile pagan community that is not interested in Jesus as Messiah. And so in those verses, the the introduction of this idea of standing firm in the midst of fiery trials with our focus on the future, living today in light of eternity. And then the first major division of the epistle goes from 113 to 212, and there are a variety of these imperatives that uh, I've pointed out over the last few weeks, and the basic idea is to stand in the hope of our calling, standing in grace by girding up the loins of our mind. The focus is on our thinking, and I'm going to emphasize that again because as we get into these first three verses of chapter 2, it it takes us right back to the importance of thinking. We live in an era today, and it's sad that that, uh, the outside world focuses on a uh, new new forms of mysticism, new forms of mysticism, subjectivism, uh, emotionalism. Uh, all of this is related to a shift away from a belief in objective truth, and it impacts every area of life and every area of thinking. And so, as believers, we ha- we can't use the thinking of the world as a criterion. Yet, we go to so many churches today, and what we find in these churches is a lot of just. Emotion for the sake of emotion. Worship is defined as emotion. A person's fellowship with God is uh, 
uh, evaluated in terms of how they feel. Uh, again and again, it's how they feel, not how they think. And yet the scriptures focus on thinking. We see these commands, the first command in First Peter 1, 13 through 14, to rest your hope fully on the grace brought to you through sober thinking, objective thinking, thinking on the Word of God. Second, they were to set themselves apart to the service of God in every area of life. Be holy, for I am holy. First Peter 1, 15 through 16. The next command was to conduct your lives in fearful respect of God. Uh, so it focuses on conduct again and again. Uh, even the first two points focus on conduct. This is a major word, a major idea throughout this epistle. As Christians, it is about how we live. We have forgiveness. We can confess sin. But the bottom line, as we'll see tonight, is still related to how we live our lives. Uh, we're to love one another uh, with integrity, First Peter 1, 22 to 25. That's the main command there. You just look at how this is structured based on the imperative mood verbs, and that gives us the, the talking points that Peter is working through here. And then after First uh, Peter 1, 22 to 25, the next command is the one we have here in verse 2, to crave the milk of the word. And then there's going to be a... Uh, sort of a parenthetical section from 4 to 9 that we'll need to spend a lot of time working our way through, very important section. And then there's a conclusion in verses 11 and 12 that we are to have honorable conduct. And again, this is, um, uh, we're to conduct ourselves in this way. Again, this comes back to the primary focus of this, this, this section. So in summary... Well, we could say based on the end of chapter 1 that this imperishable seed, the message of the gospel of grace, resulted in regeneration. This new life now of a spiritual infant must be nourished by the word of God in order to grow. And that's where we are in these three, uh, in these three verses. So let's just begin by looking at the first three verses. Let me read them for you. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now, as we look at these verses... Uh, we have to make some initial observations. Actually, these three verses are some of my favorite verses for a lot of different reasons, but it's a great summary focus, especially verse 2, on the importance of the Word of God for growth. It's not entertainment. It's not fellowship. It's not music. It's not worship. It is again and again in Scripture the Word of God that nourishes us, that sanctifies us, that strengthens us, and that builds us up. And we saw that last time as I took us through Psalm, uh, Psalm 119 and pointed out a number of the uh, important words there, 175 verses that, that focus on, on the Word of God. And interesting, at the very end, I pointed out the last verse as a plea that God will forgive the psalmist. Uh, so it takes us back to the importance that we experience forgiveness uh, for our sins, not just at salvation, 
but ongoing in part as part of the spiritual life and we'll see how this plays now now the interesting thing about these three verses is that if you read them in various english translations you get different ideas the first verse says therefore laying aside all malice now that's not a bad translation but the uh, participial translation there of the verb is correct but in English, the grammar doesn't function quite the same way as it does uh, does in the Greek. And so we lose the thrust of what this means. And in fact, in many commentaries, they translate it not totally inaccurately uh, as, as a command to lay aside or to get rid of or to... Um, are to quit doing this They'll get, as they get a little bit more of a paraphrase. And it is, does have a, uh, an imperatival or a command sense to it, which it picks up from the main verb. But it's kind of an unusual construction in Greek, and if you don't catch it, you miss a vital, vital point. So the first thing we ought to observe is that the first three verses of this chapter are one sentence in the original. It's, that means that it's one, one primary thought. Okay, when I teach Bible study methods, I try to get uh, people to think in terms of the, the sentence structure. A lot of times in the Greek, you'll have a sentence that may be 5, 7, 9, 13, 17 verses long. Paul especially would, would have these really long constructions. You have compound complex sentences within compound complex uh, sentences almost and so in English they'll often break these up into um, into 8, 10, 12 sentences but if we think just about writing and just about language a sentence is the basic unit of thought okay so so even if it's a compound complex sentence it's still expressing one unit of thought or it may have two main independent clauses linked together but that's brought together by the by the writer to express one one thought. But if we break it into two, three, or four sentences, what we're doing is we're breaking it down into three or four thoughts, when and that may cause us to miss the main point and to major on things that are secondary. Not that they're not important, but they're secondary to the primary idea. So it's important to recognize. And when I teach this, especially to pastors, if you've got a, whether you can read Greek or not, you can look at a Greek text in Logos or some other uh, computer tool, and you don't have to be able to read a single word to be able to count the periods. So you look at a Greek text, and if you're looking at 10 verses and you count three periods, that tells you there's three sentences in the Greek. In the English, you may may see eight periods. They'll tell you right away that the English text has broken these sentences up. Uh, so the reason I'm saying that is because when you look at this particular sentence, there's an initial uh, participial phrase, or excuse me, participial clause in verse 1. Then you have your primary independent clause in verse 2, which is desire the pure milk of the word. And then you have a conditional clause in verse 3 that is modifying what's said in verse verse 2. So the main idea here, this is um, what we need to focus on, is Peter is saying desire 
the pure milk of the word. That's what he wants us to focus on. That's the main thought here. Desire the milk of the word. And it's a command to desire it. And he gives us a great illustration of how what this word desire or crave means. It's like a hungry baby. And we all know what hungry babies do when they want to be fed. They go take a nap, right? They scream and they cry and they make a big fuss because they want you to feed them. Problem is we have a lot of Christians today who don't make a fuss about the fact that they're being starved to death. And I think the reason is is because they've been put on a forced fast for so long that they've lost their appetite. I know if you've ever gone on a fast, a long fast, after about the first 24 to 48 hours, you lose your appetite. And it's not till you get uh, well past the 40th day that that appetite will come back because now it's life-threatening. As long as you're drinking plenty of fluids and hydrating, any, anyone can go 40 days without any food. The, the fact that the Lord fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, people say, oh, that's a miracle. Well, it may be a miracle for you and me, but any of us can do that. It doesn't take God's power to do that. Uh, but see, the point that I'm making is that when you don't get fed, eventually you won't have, a, have an appetite. You won't desire the word. And we, you know, babies need to let the shepherds know they need to be fed. So this is the, the first idea is, is focusing on what is the main idea, the main thought in these three, three verses. Second point that I want to make as an initial observation is that first verse begins with a therefore. And if you've been around here for any length of time, you know that I like to say that when you see a therefore, you have to look to see what it's there for. What's, this is drawing a conclusion. But is it drawing a conclusion from uh, everything said in uh, verse uh, uh, 12 down through 25 or verse, uh, excuse me, verse 13 down through 25 and verse 13 started with the therefore? Is it drawing a therefore or is it drawing this therefore from just, just the previous uh, verses of 22 to 25? And let me suggest that this is probably drawing a conclusion from verses 20 through 22 to 25. And remember, verses 24 and half 25 are a quote from the Old Testament. So the main idea that's been stated in the previous section had to do with purified souls at the beginning of verse, um, verse 22. And I translated it this way. Since you have, and uh, that, that word purified is a, a Greek word that's in the perfect tense. Now, that's really important for understanding what's being said here. Uh, the perfect tense indicates a past completed action, not just a past action or an action that occurred in the past and it's still going on today, but it's a past completed action and the focus in this use is on the completedness of the action. And so what, what Peter is saying here is that you've already had this, this purification. It's completed. And so I would take that to be our positional sanctification that took place at the instant of salvation, our, 
our positional cleansing. They did that by obeying the truth through the Spirit, and that truth is defined uh, later in verse 25 as the gospel that was preached to them. They obeyed the truth through the Spirit, and and what he's saying is since or because you've done this in the past, now you have to love the brethren. Because you've you've been born again, and there again it's talking about regeneration in phase one, Uh, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And so he emphasizes this, this past completed action. And just to remind everyone, we have what people refer to as three stages of salvation or three phases of salvation or three tenses of salvation. Phase one is justification, which takes place in an instant of time. When we believe the gospel, when we believe that Jesus Christ died as our substitute, died for our sins, and by faith alone in him, trusting in him alone, we have eternal life. Now, right after that, at that instant, we're justified, we're declared righteous, and we are born again, we're regenerate, we become a new creature in Christ. Right after that, just like when a newborn baby is born, immediately there is a need for nutrition and growth. And that, but it's not the same thing as birth. Feeding the baby to grow isn't the same as birthing the baby, even if you don't know nothing about birthing babies. They're different. So justification takes place at phase one. Spiritual life is phase two. And the last phase is glorification. And and the Bible uses the word saved to describe each one. At phase one, we're saved from the penalty of sin. During phase two, we're saved from the present power of sin. And in phase three, we are saved from the presence of sin. So we often refer to that first category as positional salvation or positional sanctification, where we are positionally new creatures in Christ, we're positionally set apart to him, and uh, that, and we're positionally sanctified. But that's different from the second stage, which is being experientially sanctified, where we are growing and, and becoming set apart unto God for, for service as we, as we spiritually grow. So, I think it's important then that when we look at 2.1 and he says, therefore, he's going back to verse this concept in verse 22 and 23 that we have been born again. It's a completed action and that we have been purified, completed action. But in experience, it's not completed. So he says, therefore, because positional truth is, is real, we must go on to experiential reality, which has to do with dealing with the sin in our life that consistently plagues us, okay? So that's the, that's the second point. The first point of observation was that these sentences focus on one thought, to crave the Word of God so that we can grow. Second is that the verse draws a conclusion from verses 22 to 25, which focus on phase one, and says that therefore we must go on into spiritual advance and deal with the sin in our life. 
We're positionally sanctified, but not experientially sanctified. And the third thing is we have to understand uh, some things about this verb to lay aside. Uh, Some translations, such as the ESV, translate this as a command. Technically, it's not. It's a participle. And the participle, I know this getting into grammar drives some people nuts, but grammar helps us understand exactly what is being said here. And this is really important. This word, this this participle here tells us that it's a participle always, at least this kind of a participle, it's an adverbial participle or a type of adverbial participle, it says something about the main verb. And so it's related to the main verb, which is to desire or crave the word. So when we look at it, this is the word apotithemi, and it is a, an aorist passive participle. Now, that may not mean a lot to a lot of us because aorist tense isn't part of the English language, but aorist basically is a simple past kind of uh, uh, tense in the Greek. What we're going to see is that when you have an aorist participle under certain conditions that precedes an imperative verb, that it fits a rarely identified category of syntax in the Greek that really helps us understand what's going on. But first, we have to just understand the verb. It's a word that apatithe means to take something off. If you're going to tell somebody, somebody comes in your house in the winter, and you're going to help them take off their coat, you're going to use that verb to take off your clothes, to take off your jacket, to take off your, your sweater, and to, to come inside and relax a little bit. So it's a word that's used a lot to take something off, to put something away. But it's also used in, in a metaphorical sense to remove dirt from the body. And when we talk about removing dirt from the body, that brings into mind this idea of cleansing. So the backdrop for this word has to do with cleansing. And when I mention the word cleansing in this contra- congregation, we all ought to be thinking immediately about 1 John 1, 9, that we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's that experiential cleansing that's related to ongoing spiritual growth. Now, this word is used in a number of of interesting passages. Um, before we get there, though, because it precedes an imperative, the d- word desire, it does pick up an imperatival sense. But what we'll see is that in this kind of grammar construction, the imperative of the uh, the imperatival idea in this participle is secondary and takes a back seat to the pr- main imperative. Now, when you translate it as, a, and it's an imperative in English, it looks like verse 1 is the main imperative and verse 2 is the secondary idea. And we lose the thrust. But in the Greek, what we're seeing here, and I'll talk about it a little more, is that the, this participle used this way is say, stating the precondition for being able to fulfill the imperative. It's the prerequisite, what you have to do before you can do the imperative. So it does have a sense of that imperatival idea. Now, the next few verses I'm going to show you don't have this kind of grammar, but they do use this word and helps us to see what this word means. In Romans 13:12, 12, 
Paul says the night is far spent, the day is at hand. He's talking about the fact that now we are in the church age and we're, we've had this illumination of the gospel of grace and we understand it and we're saved. And he says, therefore, let us cast off, let us remove, let us put off. It's apatithemi. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, in that context, this is not a one-shot deal. We don't just stand up one day and say, I'm going to walk the aisle, raise my hand, yield to the Spirit, and boom, I've uh, taken off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. We know that that is a process that takes all of our life. It's the process of growing spiritually and, uh, and, and experientially being, being sanctified or set apart to the Lord. So we're to uh, put off, cast off or put off or remove the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. What that means is we have to change the way we think and the way we live. I've known a lot of Christians most of my life, and I've been around in a lot of different churches. I've been in Bible churches. I've been in Bible teaching, strong Bible teaching Bible churches. I've been in weak Bible churches. I've been in Baptist churches. I even went to a Presbyterian church for a short time. And one of the problems we have across the board is Christians who spend a lot of time talking about grace and learning about grace. In some cases, we have a lot of people who are who are just glad that they get to confess their sin because they never quite seem to change the way they think and live, but they're confessing it every 30 seconds. Now, if we think about what Jesus says in John 15, where the command is to abide in Christ, which means to stay or remain, that's like saying, stay inside the house. Inside the house is where there's light, there's warmth, there's fellowship with God. Outside the house is darkness. It's cold. Uh, unbelievers are out there. Um, and what a lot of Christians have is a revolving door at the front door that has 1 John 1, 9 written on it. And all they do is they go around and around and around in that revolving door. And they think that because they keep doing that, that they're going somewhere. Well, they may have taken their 10,000 steps that day, but they haven't gone anywhere forward. They're just going around and around in a circle. And what the Scripture says is that growth takes place by walking by the Spirit, not walking by 1 John 1, 9. Not walking by confession. It's getting inside the house and spending time in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, abiding with Christ, and letting the Word change us. But then when we sin, we're outside the front door, and we have to get back in. We just need to stay in the house. Now, when you're a baby believer, you're gonna, you can't figure out how to get out, out of that revolving door. But when you've been around for five or ten years, you need to figure out how to get outside that, out of that revolving door and stay in the house and abide in Christ. So that's what this is saying, is that the works of darkness is a term for sin. And we need to cast that off. It should not characterize our thinking or characterize our lives. What should characterize our lives is those things related to the armor of God, related to truth, all of that under the metaphor of light. Now, another verse that uses the same language, uh, this apatithemi, is Colossians 3.8. 
but now you also put them all aside. And he uses this phrase, apatithemi, as an imperative. So take them all off. And as an aorist imperative, what that means in terms of grammar is this is a priority. A present imperative would be understood as something that is a standard operating procedure. It's not that it shouldn't be a standard operating procedure, but Paul uses the aorist imperative because they're probably not doing it, and he wants them to make it a priority, that they need to put these things aside, anger, wrath, malice. Malice, don't I have that word somewhere? Yeah, that's in that first verse. Therefore, putting aside or laying aside all malice. Notice it doesn't say some malice. We'll get to that in a minute. Laying aside all malice. Um, Here he says, put them all, Paul says, put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Interesting, slander and abusive speech are both parts of sins of the tongue. And in our passage in 2.1, the last thing that Peter lists is evil speaking, broad categories covering the sins of the tongue, gossip, slander, lying, um, all kinds of uh, abusive speech. Okay, that's Colossians 3.8. That helps us to understand how this, what this word means, to, to, get re- to remove this sin so it doesn't characterize your life. Now let's talk about the grammar a minute. This is what's fun. Because it, it reinforces a doctrine that we've learned again and again and again and some people think is wrong for us. And they, they say this idea that you're in and out of fellowship is wrong. You're always in fellowship. Some people uh, say that this idea that there are those who abide and those who don't abide, this is just an el- this is from a study Bible, by the way. This is just an elitist idea that some Christians are elite and abide and some Christians don't. Total misunderstanding of of the concept. What we see here is a grammatical structure that fits the pattern of what is called a participle of attendant circumstance. A participle of attendant circumstance. What that basically means is this participle is connected and gives us a... Watch out. It's not the rapture. Just the ceiling falling down. The, the, The light... um, The light cover over the light fixture fell. Glad nobody was sitting back there tonight. Um, It says says something in attendance, something in addition to the circumstances necessary to fulfill the command. Okay, that's breaking down the language there a little bit. A participle of attendant circumstance is not something that that I know is a user-friendly term for, for probably most people. So what you have listed in Dan Wallace's grammar are basically five things to look for in the context. The tense of the participle is usually in the aorist tense. The tense of the main verb is usually aorist, but it can be present. The mood of the main verb is usually imperative. And the participle comes before the main verb, both in word order and in time of event. Those are usually a very close proximity. And then the last point is attendant circumstance participles occur frequently in narrative literature, infrequently elsewhere. It's not common in epistolary type of literature. 
but it's still there. So this fits all of these uh, particular things. This is in Dan Wallace's Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics, uh, page 642. So this helps us to look at this and say this is, an, this is a really interesting, interesting type of, of construction because this is not one that uh, is highlighted. I read probably 10 or 12 commentaries, not just on this passage, but the other passages that I'm going to show you in just a minute. And, and not one of them identified this as attendant circumstance. I'll take that back. Maybe one of them identified it as attendant circumstance, but didn't tell the reader what that meant, why it was important. Uh, see, I, don't tr- I try not to just throw out grammar to sh- show off or to make it look like, oh, I know this Greek grammar. But there's sometimes when the Greek grammar really does bring out a point, and this is this is one of those. So we look at this, and it has this idea that that you first have to lay aside the sins before you can desire the milk of the word. What have we always said? Before you can study the word, you have to confess your sin. You have to get back in fellowship. You have to be cleansed. That's the idea here, that, that, that you have to be cleansed. But this is, he, he's not saying just confess it, or he could have said confess it. He's talking about the ultimate goal for the believer is not just to confess sin and get back in fellowship, but over the course of time, we should find ourselves uh, sinning less. We'll never be perfect. We may sin less. We may sin less in terms of instead of committing 10,000 sins today, I have improved. I only commit 8,000. That's a huge improvement. I remember hearing a testimony from a, from a Dallas Cowboy football player who had been saved for two years. And he said, before I was saved, I ran around with a lot of women, and I probably went to bed with over 600 women a year. He said, I'm growing in grace. It's really hard. Uh, I've had sexual relations with 60 women this year. Now, a lot of people are going to look at him and go, 60 women? That's terrible. And that's a 90% improvement. This guy's going in the right direction. You know, if we change to another sin that people don't get so shocked about and say, well, you know, I got, I gossiped 600 times the year I was saved, but now I only gossip 60 times. We would say, well, that's a great improvement. But, you know, we're going to look at some sin like adultery or sexual immorality or homosexuality, and we're going to say, oh, it's all or nothing. That's judgmental, and that's not understanding the realities of spiritual growth. We don't grow in huge leaps or bounds. It's not a one-shot decision. We, we struggle with sin, and we struggle with the areas of weakness in our sin nature. But what Peter is saying here is that we have to lay aside. We start with confession. And when we confess, we're cleansed. We are the slates wiped clean at that point, and as long as we don't sin... We're in right relationship with the Lord, and we're not committing any of these sins. Eventually, we will sin, and we'll be out of fellowship, but then we confess, and we're back. Confession isn't a license to sin, but the liberty to get back in fellowship. So (coughs) that's what we see here is this participle, and a participle of attendant circumstance does a couple of things. This is also the summary and quotes from what Dan Wallace says. He says, 
this participle of attendant circumstance has something of an ingressive force in it. That means you're begin to begin to do this, to start doing it. It's often used to introduce a new action or a shift in the narrative. Now, I think that's important because in two one, there's a shift in Peter's thinking and in what he's starting to talk about. And it, it introduces a new action because he's he's been talking about certain things up to this point, and now he's shifting gears. He's getting ready to end this section. He's going to shift into a, a totally different secondary idea in verses 4 through nine, uh, four through 10, uh, and then he'll conclude. But now he's, really, he's talking, focusing them on desiring the Word because that's how you grow. How are you going to fulfill these other, other commands that he's emphasized already? The commands to rest your hope fully on the grace of God, the command to be holy for I am holy, uh, the command to um, uh, <clears throat> live your lives in, in fear of the Lord, and the idea of, uh, of uh, growing and conducting yourselves in the right way before. All of those, uh, down to loving your brethren, requires the word of God to grow. And so that's what he's talking about here. So the first thing that this participle does is it shows an introduction or a shift in the narrative. Second, it says the participle is a prerequisite to the action of the main verb. A prerequisite means you can't desire the word and grow unless first you deal with sin. So the emphasis is really on the action of the main verb, but it requires something ahead of time. Now let's think about this for just a minute. Lay aside all malice. Doesn't say some malice. Doesn't say most of your malice. It says all malice. All deceit. And then there's no all in front of hypocrisy and envy. And I think that's because those words tie together with deceit and different aspects of deceit talk about those words in a minute, and all evil speaking. Three alls are in that passage. Now, none of us can do that. We can't say, I'm going to go out of here and I'm going to remove all of this from my life. One-shot decision. Like the old sawdust trail, that when they'd have tent revivals and they had sawdust on the floor, somebody would walk the aisle and come forward. They called it walking the sawdust trail. Uh, it's a one-shot decision. That's not what this is talking about, because that's not reality. We can't make a one-shot decision and just quit doing this. It's not going to happen. We have to uh, confess it first, and for a short while, we're cleansed, we're in fellowship. Might be three or four seconds for some people, but as you grow, it's maybe three or four minutes, maybe longer, and you mature. But before you can desire the Word... Remember what David said in the Psalms, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. There's no fellowship. How shall a young man cleanse his way? We read that last week in, in Psalm 119. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. So it's related to, to, to cleansing. We have to be in this cleansed state. So we have this aorist participle for laying aside Apatithemi, it's an aorist participle, and an aorist participle always precedes the action in an aorist imperative. Sometimes it's simultaneous in the past, but usually it precedes. So when you have, th this fits those qualifications, is that 
is that for a participle of a tenant circumstance, the participle comes first in the main verb. The participle's in the aorist. The main verb's usually in the aorist. The main verb is an imperative. All these fit. So that, that's what we're looking at here. Now we have some other similar passages. Passages that are difficult for people to deal with sometimes. James 1.21. Therefore, James says, lay aside. Notice how that's translated like a participle. I mean, like an imperative. It's not. It is an aorist participle. Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. That's from the New King James. New King James, I think, is a little a bit of an improvement over the Old King James, which was superfluity of naughtiness. Yeah, that's the overflow of wickedness, the excess of wickedness. Uh, it's interesting that word for wickedness is similar to the word that we have here for, for um, all malice. Same idea, lay it aside and receive with meekness or humility the implanted word. What's the command? Receive the implanted word. Same thing that, that Peter is saying is desire the milk of the word. But that command is preceded by the fact that you've got to get some you've got to get cleansed you've got to take off that that dirty robe you've got to be washed by the by confession and cleansed from experiential sin so that you can grow uh, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls now that's not talking about getting into heaven Sozo can be used to refer to justification, but in many cases it refers to the spiritual life, working out your salvation, Paul says, with fear and trembling, saving the life. And that's what James is talking about, is how you can get through trials and tribulations. He's, talk, he's, he, he's talking about the same thing uh, Peter is in First Peter. Ephesians 4.25 uh, says, putting away lying. Let each of you speak truth. That's the imperative. Before you can speak the truth, you've got to ditch the lies. That's the prerequisite. It's the same idea. We see this many times. Also, Hebrews 12.1, laying aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. We've got to ditch the sin that holds us back before we can start running. All these are expressing basically the same idea which we've taught for years, confession of sin, and that we have to confess sin, we have to get back in fellowship, walk by the Spirit, before we can go forward, before we can take in the Word, before we can grow spiritually. Now let's just think a few minutes about these sins that are listed here. A couple of observations, as I pointed out already, you have three times the word all is used there, and nobody... Uh, if we have to desire the pure milk of the word and we have to lay aside all malice and all evil speaking and all deceit, then we might as well just close our Bibles and go home because we'll never get there. Okay? So it's got to be talking about something more than just not doing these things. But that's definitely part of it. It's, it starts with confession because that's what cleanses us. So that first word malice is the word kakia, which means evil or bad or destructive or damaging. And um, it, it's just a general word. All of these are general words. We could subdivide them into many different categories and example. But this is doing anything that is generally evil or bad, anything that is wrong. 
So laying aside all wrongdoing, we could translate that way. It's pretty, we can't do that in, in just a natural pull ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps kind of way. We can only do that if we confess sin and we're cleansed by God the Holy Spirit. The second word is dalos, all deceit. This is the idea of committing fraud or uh, living a life that is filled with pretense or deceit or corruption or dissimulation. All of these are these, these various words. And often these words are found together, malice and deceit, kakia and dalas are found together. Passages like Romans one twenty nine. notice these sin lists. Being filled with all unrighteousness is talking about uh, pagan unbelievers, all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, that's kakia, full of envy, murder, strife, and deceit, that's dalas. 1 Corinthians 14.20, Paul says to believers, Brethren, do not be children understanding. However, in malice, kakia, be babes. But in understanding, that's a thought word. It's not a feeling word. In understanding, that is knowing the word, learning the milk of the word and knowing what it says. In, in understanding, be mature. Ephesians 4.31, again, Paul says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. These are character qualities that should not characterize a believer. And we have this word uh, malice in that list. James 1.21, it's that word wickedness, uh, setting aside all uh, filthiness and overflow of, of, of wickedness. So malice is anything that's unjust, destructive, damaging of people, or it's, or evil. It's a broad general word covering a multitude of sins. One commentator in the Word Biblical Commentary set says that kakiish could be summarized as mischief or bad blood, the nursing and acting out of grudges against particular people or against society as a whole. I think that may be a nuance here that's important because if we're right that these are Jewish background believers that are being persecuted and and ridiculed by uh, their the Jewish community by those who like they they treated Paul, then uh, they could react in grudges. They could react in in malicious ways. They could react with sins of the tongue, and so this is the kind of thing that that would be be covered in this this verse. Don't let this characterize. Take this off. John talked about uh, Jesus talked about Nathaniel in John one forty seven, and said he was an Israelite in whom there was no guile or deceit. There's no fraud, guile, pretense. He's not self serving. That's that's the idea there in that second word, dalos. The next word it says put aside all malice, all deceit, and then hypocrisy from the Greek hypocrisis, which has a a root in Greek drama. Of putting on a mask so that you're acting like someone else that this mask portrays rather than yourself. So it refers, to, it comes to refer to deceit or deceitfulness, duplicity, falsity, uh, insincerity, Phariseeism, and it's intentionally doing one thing deceptively in order to mask what you're doing in some other area. 
Jesus said in Matthew 23:28, as he is condemning, we'll get to there on Sunday in a few weeks, even so you are also out, even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men. That's the Pharisees on the outside. They're uh, praying seven times a day. They're, they're giving alms to the poor. They're doing all of these different things. But, but on the inside, Jesus said they were like whitewashed sepulchers. They're like dead men, men's bones. They're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The next word that we have linked together, these three words, deceit, hypocrisy, and then envy is the Greek word thanos, which basically means same thing as our English word envy, to desire what somebody else has. It's in that list of sins in Romans 1, 20, 29, and in the list of the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, 21. Uh, continues to be a sin. Not This is wanting what other people have, desiring whatever pe- other people have, thinking that what they have is what you should have in order to be happy. And then the last thing that's mentioned again, modified by the adjective all, is all evil speaking. And this word is listed in another one of those sin lists in 2 Corinthians 12.20. Now, these sin lists are important. They're, they're not exhaustive. But they give us an idea of the, the, the type of character and character qualities that should not characterize a believer, but characterize often characterize the unbeliever. Now, not all unbelievers are like this. There's a lot of moral unbelievers. But that doesn't mean they stay moral. They're operating on the flesh. Now, we get to the second verse, and we're told to desire the pure milk of the word. And it has the idea there uh, of the genuine or true milk of the word. And we're to do it like a newborn baby. As I pointed out earlier, babies demand to be fed. That's what should happen in a lot of churches. People should demand to be fed. They want to be fed over and over and over again. Feed us, feed us. That's what the pastor should do. But in most churches today, the pastor is like a, uh, he's like a CEO. He's the, he's the manager. He's the facilitator. Uh, he's not the teacher. He's going to delegate. And most models today that are very popular for big churches is the pastor speaks once a week. He's a motivator. He spends all week working on a 20-minute message. No wonder they're so good rhetorically. But they don't teach anything. But if they're good, they're going to be able to turn out something that wows people and stimulates them. And and uh, it's funny how many unbelievers even spot the fact that some of these some of these pastors of these mega churches. I've got I've got a a good friend that is about as agnostic and atheist and secular a Jew as you can find. And and she says I've studied psychology all my life. And she mentioned some well-known uh, pastor here in town who's on TV all the time. And she said all he's doing is giving a motivational speech. It's just pure psychology. She said, I can understand why you say it's not biblical. And that's from the mouth of someone who's spiritually dead and doesn't have a clue about anything that's going on in the Bible. But she can spot it. But look how many Christians get deceived by that. See, we're to desire the milk of the word. And here there's not a contrast between milk and milk and meat like you have over in Romans 14. Here it's just taught using... Uh, the, the the milk as the focal point of nourishment. We are to be nourished. That's what nourishes believers. It's not music. It's not emotion. It's not fellowship. It's not prayer. 
it's the word. All those other things can be a byproduct, but but the early church in Acts 2.42, what did they do? They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. That's the first thing. They were devoted to teaching. If you're devoted to teaching, what's the flip side of that? You're devoted to learning. You want to learn the word. And I've been in a lot of churches where that's not why people are there. They don't want to learn the word. And then we have a... a um, and then the, the the word that's used for word here is an unusual word. It's not it's not logos, which can refer to uh, the written word. It's not rhema, which was used at the end there in um, in verse twenty five, which often in, emphasizes the spoken word. It, it's the word logikos, <clears throat> which is the same word that's used in. In Romans 12.2, when Paul says that, that we are to be uh, renewing our mind and being transformed by the renewing of our mind and not conform to the world, uh, verse 1, rather. Verse 1 says, says uh, present yourselves uh, a living sacrifice to God, which is your reasonable or your rational, your logicon service. That's what we're to do. So that that's the idea there. And so this has to do with it pertains to uh, reason and therefore reasonable or rational speech as rational expression. So it's talking about the idea of learning the word that is spoken or taught. The focus here isn't on reading your Bible, which you should be doing. And I'm always pleased how many people I run into who've made it six months reading through their Bible. They're going to make it, read it through for the year following the schedule we put up. Um, they're doing that, but this is 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 word that is related to its verbal rational expression or the fact that it's being taught. Um, this is uh, this is an unusual word, and um, actually, few people have taken the time to really drill down on this. A few uh, commentaries and people that look at it um, end up going in this particular direction that you may grow thereby, auxana, which means to grow, to mature, to develop. This is used in Colossians 1.9 and, um, uh, and 10. Let's get the context in verse 9. For this reason, Paul says, we also, since the day we heard of it, don't, do not cease to pray for you and to ask. This is what we should be praying. You should be praying it for me. You should be praying it for each other in the congregation that we may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That just doesn't come because God's gonna, going to uh, uh, just uh, sort of scatter pixie dust on top of you and it's suddenly you're going to have spiritual wisdom and understanding. It comes from studying the Word, being in Bible class, learning, thinking, reviewing your notes. Uh, all of this is important. Uh, it's for a purpose, verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing, and the word there is auxana, to grow in the knowledge of God. It's not just a sort of a disjointed intellectual activity. It, it, it builds our relationship with God. We come to know him personally where he has a vital role in our in our life 
It's the same idea that, that Jesus expresses in his high priestly prayer that we are, when he prays to God, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. That's what Jesus is praying, that we're sanctified by the truth, not by fellowship, music, all these other things. And then the last phrase Peter says is, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. That's the foundation again. It goes back to regeneration. That if there is a first-class condition, which means uh, that this condition is assumed to be true, it is assumed that they have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now, what does this mean? Now, this isn't tasting like you may experience if you go someplace and go to a wine tasting where you just have a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and you just get a sense of the flavor. When we first moved to Connecticut, and uh, we were living in a little sort of a duplex type of situation in, in, uh, in, in Baltic, Connecticut, we had a lot of time on our hands, because if you don't have to take care of a house, you have a lot of time on your hands. And uh, we took off about the third weekend we were there just to explore, and we went over to Newport, Rhode Island, just to see what was there. And they were having a, um, a big festival there, big, big uh, seafood festival, and one of the things they had was a clam chowder tasting. And so you would go from uh, restaurant to restaurant, they had about 30, 35 restaurants there, and you would go, and they would give you a little bitty paper cup with probably less than an ounce of clam chowder, and you would just get a little taste of it. But after you've done that 35 times... You've had about somewhere around 20 ounces of clam chowder, and you're pretty full, okay? Uh, this idea here isn't tasting in the sense of just getting your taste bud stimulated a little bit where you get a little familiar with it. It's the Greek word guomai, which means to fully experience something. It's used in Hebrews 2.9, but we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death. He just didn't get, get a little hint of what death was like. He fully, completely, totally died physically. He experienced full death. That's the idea of guamai. So if you've tasted that the Lord is gracious, when did they experience the grace of God? When they believed that Jesus died for their sins and that by his death alone is a free gift of God, they had eternal life. And so that's the foundation. Peter is saying, if you're really saved, if you're regenerate, then you need to, you've been positionally cleansed. Now you need to start the growth process. You need to take in the word. But there's a prerequisite to taking in the word. You need to confess sin. You need to be able to take off this sin you go out and walk the streets of the world and you get all this garbage on you. You need to take it off so that you can have fellowship with God and you can grow. You can move from walking in darkness to walking in the light. That begins with confession, but it continues by taking these characteristics by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, as we walk by the Spirit, out of our life so that they don't characterize uh, our life anymore. That's the idea. Now, once Peter says this, then he's going to shift gears in verse 4. And we have to figure this out. I'm telling you, I've been beating my 
brains out. Jim came over the other day. We talked about this for about three or four hours. We both spent hours, days, talking about this next section. I don't know that we've come to a firm conclusion yet. But there's a lot of confusion and little light about this, and uh, I think we got close. At least we figured out which direction we probably ought to go to understand it a little better. And I pray the Lord will give me some clear insight by next week. Either that or we'll come together, fold our hands in prayer, and have fellowship. Father, thank you for this time together, this time in your word, where we can learn what it means to be, to be cleansed, to grow, to remove sin from our life, starting with confession and then the application of your word, and that the primary element of growth is your word again and again. It's your word that matures us, and it's your word by which we grow. And it's the word as it is expressed and taught uh, rationally and logically so that we can understand it and apply it in our lives. And, Father, we pray that we will focus more and more on your word. In Christ's name, amen.